This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. We certainly all know uh, the Blue Jays are in the World Series and, of course, playing the Cleveland Indians. And uh, the series, of course, uh, two games in favor of Cleveland as it heads back to Toronto. Uh, Just in time, a hearing is taking place at 1 o'clock in an Ontario court to consider an application to stop Cleveland from wearing their jerseys in Toronto as they are considered by some to be offensive. To talk more on all of this, uh, and we're going to talk with uh, the lawyer uh, with International Human Rights Association, who uh, is um, one of the people affiliated with this case, coming up a little later on. First, we're going to talk with Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show, right here every weeknight on CHML, and of course, sports columnist for your Hamilton Spectator. You can read him there and at thespec.com. He is with us now. Hello, Scott. How are you today? I'm great, but let me just say one thing, because some people may have thought they slept through the weekend and went into a coma and woke up a week later. They're not in the World Series yet. Okay. That's okay. But you know what? I wish I had. I wish I'd fallen asleep and slept for eight days and woke up and the Jays were in the World Series. That would be very cool. Well, you know, to me, it's all American like... American League Championship, yeah. Yeah, but it's all part of the World Series. It's you're splitting. part of the World Series. You're splitting. Hey, listen. Hey, listen to me. Hey, sports boy, listen to this. If all of a sudden the uh, the Blue Jays have made the, quote, postseason by playing in one wild card game, we're in the we're in the World Series. All right. You know what? I can't argue that, uh, that the wild card calling it the playoffs. When they're bringing uh, out champagne yep. twice for the same celebration and you're telling me you're 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 questioning my use of term? <laughs> Please. You don't get this problem in NASCAR, my friend. There's clear winner that. there's clear winners and losers in my sport. Yeah, in NASCAR they hold their Super Bowl first as opposed to after the <laughs> That's season. Right. So, you That's know, right. Cuz you don't know who's going to be you don't know who's going to be left after that. <laughs> That's true. Only too. the strong remain standing, Scott. Yes, I hear you. All right. So, you. Anyway. Uh, the American League Championship. Is that okay? Yeah, you're, you're, oh, you're, that's so good, Scott. Dang. You sound professional. Uh, I got a headache today, and you're already <laughs> irritating me as my first guest. Oh, uh, it can only get better. <laughs> All right. So, surprised that it's got to this. Uh, which, the series or the injunction? Uh, just our conversation. No. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, uh, no. The injunction? Yes, yes. To try to stop them from using the name. You know why I'm surprised about this? Look, if, 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 your next guest who's coming on, uh, it, you know, they're offended by the name. Uh, the court system is there for them for that purpose. There are other things that are there, other venues to try and deal with this. So that's, you know, that, that is their right. That's their, that's as opposed to uh, somebody blocking highways or whatever or other kinds of protests that are you know more this is your legal and proper venue to begin to to, to go through this so i i applaud them fine you if you if you believe this is offensive if you are offended by this if you believe it's inappropriate this is the venue to go by good luck to you and that's fine the thing though that i'm curious about and that perhaps i get a little bit um skeptical cynical maybe is where have all the other ones been? Because the Indians were here three times earlier this year. They've been here a dozen times in the last four years. They've been here hmm. hundreds of times over the years. Maybe this is ongoing, and now with it being the almost said World Series, uh, the well, American seems, League Championship, now it's obviously in a higher platform. It's a higher platform, exactly. It's a, exactly. So it, it, my initial response is, well, this is a great chance to get a lot of attention. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's a good thing, maybe that's a bad thing. But if you've, you had, a few years ago, you had the Washington Redskins in town playing against the Buffalo Bills at Rogers Center. We've had plenty of opportunities. So I'm just, I'm wondering why now. And the only reason I can come up with is, well, it's 
people are watching this now, and so let's uh, let's jump on board this. But the other thing I, I wonder about with this, and it's really, and I, I got thinking about this when I knew I was coming on today. Let's let's say they're successful. Now, first of all, they better hope they're only partly successful. And I say that because one of the steps, one of the things that is involved in this proceeding today is that I understand they're asking for an injunction against Rogers from showing the game on TV. Yeah. If they win that part of the injunction, you're not going to make yourself help your cause. You're going to make millions of Canadians enraged yeah. at yeah. you for doing it. So you, you better hope that you win part, but not all of it. But here's the other thing. Where has been all the protests, all the legal things against the Eskimos, the Edmonton Eskimos? Mm-hmm. That's, a, that's, mm-hmm. a, that's a term that you would yep. think would fall into the same category. That's a team that plays in Canada full-time. Yep. And we've heard no- I've heard nothing. Valid point. Um, Do you think this is all simmering, though, under the surface and has been for a long time, and now that may all change? It could be. It could be. And, and, I mean, really, this seems like it is something that started with this story about Jerry Howarth, the Blue Jays play-by-play guy, who says he won't use the name. And so it started all this. uh, Not started, pardon me, because you're right. It has been there for a long time, but it's brought it to the surface now. But I just look at this and I think, you know, if this wins – and there will be a lot of people, and I'm not going to disagree with them because you and I chatted about this last week. If, if this wins and the team is not permitted to either wear the uniforms and then... Can that happen, though, do you think? I don't know. I, I, I mean, I'm not a judge. I'm not a lawyer. Yeah. I have no idea. I would be very interested to see what would happen if that happens. Like, if they win this injunction, what do the Cleveland Indians do? Do they say, that's our team? That's our uniforms. We can no longer play. It's not a safe place for us to play. It's not a fair place yeah. for us to play. We refuse to play in Toronto now. Then what happens? Well, I don't know. Um, Where but, is the team on this? Uh, it's the team has said that that's their team name, and they have no intention of changing it. Yeah. But it's it the, the, it does open the door. If this was if if this was to be successful, you would think that this would open the door to an awful lot because there are lots and lots and again. Uh, many people would say, to the shame of those teams, but there are many teams throughout North America, especially, that have some form of Braves, Seminoles, Eskimos, uh, Redskins, Indians, whatever, some form of that as their team name. If this got traction, you're now facing that issue. And now let me be a little bit silly, but maybe not so much. Because if the idea is that any team name that cartoonishes, cartoonizes, mocks, whatever you want to call it, mm-hmm. a people group. And that's what the argument is here. Is it only the Indian, Native American, indigenous group mm-hmm. that would therefore be in this group? Or should we then say, no, we've got to look broader than that. Any, any people group that is used as a team name, as a cartoon character, has to be gotten rid of. So what about the fighting Irish? In Notre Dame, yeah, because you could argue that that also is a is a is a, an insult to a people group, right? I mean, you could go on and on. There's lots and lots and lots of these, so it's it's an interesting conversation. I don't know where it goes from here. I don't know where the if they were to be successful, and I have honestly, Scott, I have zero idea if they have any chance of being successful. I really don't know. But if it is, where does this go next? Good point, Scott Radley. Thanks for the time. Much appreciated. 
Good luck. Thanks. Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show, and of course, sports columnist with your Hamilton Spectator. You can read him there and at thespec.com. Let's bring in Michael Swinwood. He is a lawyer for International Human Rights Association of American Minorities, presently working with Native groups uh, throughout Canada, and is with us now. Hello, Michael. How are you today? I'm well, thank you, and yourself. Good. Thank you for taking the time to join us. We certainly do appreciate it. Uh, What are the legalities of this case? Where do you think this is going? Well, what we're hoping is where it's going is that the court will hear what we have to say, uh, agree with it, and issue an injunction uh, in joining the Cleveland baseball team from uh, displaying the logo in the province of Ontario. And what is your case? What what, What are you trying to present? What are you saying? What's your objective? Well, the objective is exactly that. Uh, obviously, what we're saying is that, and that's why we filed human rights complaints with both the Ontario Human Rights Commission and the uh, Canada Human Rights uh, Commission, is that uh, the display of, of this logo offends Canadian law, uh, wherein uh, we are prohibited from displaying uh, symbols and signs uh, that are clearly discriminatory. And uh, one just really, I think, most people I've spoken to in the last day and a half that have interviewed me, uh, I start off by saying, well, I, I can really see why it's uh, the way it is, but you tell me your thoughts. In other words, it's plain and obvious uh, that the uh, Chief Wahoo logo is offensive and discriminatory in that it casts uh, an Indigenous person in such a cartoonish way, uh, diminishing uh, the... Um, acceptability of their existence. Uh, I can't argue with that at all. Um, what do you say to those that say it's just political correctness gone amok? Well, you know, I would ask them to uh, just kind of scratch the surface of their own consciousness to understand at a deeper level why there's such a profound disconnect between the dominant society and the indigenous peoples in this uh, nation, in fact, in all of North and South America. Why is it that there is such a profound disconnect uh, between the dominant society and the indigenous peoples? And the answer is, is that uh, it was, uh, um, you know, when they were talking about changing the lyrics to Old Canada, my suggestion was that they change it to uh, our home on stolen land. Hmm. Uh, so, why? Sorry, go ahead. Well, I just, just to say that the relationship is informed by the consciousness of genocide and apartheid and those are very, very heavy words, and people really don't want to engage in that discussion. But we're saying it's time for us to engage in that discussion. If we want to go further than what the Truth and Reconciliation Commission did in the residential school situation, which I view as being merely scratching the surface. What about uh, other scenarios like Edmonton Eskimos, who play in Canada all the time? That's what Scott Radley, sports columnist earlier, had mentioned on the air. Also, yeah. the fact that uh, Cleveland's played here three times this year. Nobody has said anything. Uh, yeah. Now, uh, Washington Redskins in town in, in southern Ontario playing an exhibition game. Yeah. Uh, in, why yeah, now? I, yeah, I get that. Because in politics, sometimes it's all about timing. Uh, Friday morning, Douglas Cardinal and I were talking about the recent suicides in Lac La Range and Stanley Mission in northern Saskatchewan. Um, we happen to know uh, Chief Tammy Cook Searson of, of that community. Uh, we were talking about this in tears uh, because there's an epidemic in this country in relation to uh, youth, uh, Indigenous youth. There, there are 20 teenagers presently on suicide watch in Lac La Range communities. Um, the idea that we are so facile 
in our uh, understanding, and we view these kinds of things as simply being uh, taking advantage of a particular opportunity, and I would agree with that. We are taking advantage of a particular opportunity. That is, so many people's eyes are on this series. It just so happens to be an appropriate time to do it because it engenders a discussion, it engenders a debate, it engenders something that we really need to face. And, and so what better timing? So what, uh, what are you specifically asking for in regard to this series, uh, this series that is moving forward, uh, obviously, tonight? Is there a legal case here? Is there, could, could this be successful? Absolutely. Absolutely. The court could take the view uh, that, that this is uh, offensive and uh, needs to be enjoined. And we're also going to present in court uh, a, a uniform, uh, of Cleveland, which ha- does not have the the logo on it, the, the offensive logo, and does not have the name Indians on it. They possess such a uniform. So they can change their uniform as quickly as they change their mind. Are you, are you expecting success? What do you think your chances are? Um, you're talking to a lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> and what does a lawyer say when you say, what do you think your chances of success are? You say 100%. But realistically, realistically, you have to wait until the matter is concluded because that's why we go to court. You know, if we, if we were able to say with convincing uh, a certitude that it was going to go this way or that way, then there would be no need to go to court. So, of course, we're hopeful. Of course, we think that we have a, a, a great case to present. And I must say that the material that's been prepared in such a, a short period of time is brilliant. And, and so it's brilliant stuff in terms of uh, what it's going to be in front of the judge. And uh, the judge is committed to making a decision today. So um, that in and of itself is, is uh, uh, very encouraging in the sense that we've been able to put together a hearing uh, just before the game. Michael Swinwood is with us, lawyer uh, with the International Human Rights Association of American Minorities, uh, presently working with Native groups throughout Canada. Michael, thanks very much for the uh, time and insight. Much appreciated. Okay, thank you. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Ontario has proposed a two-year hold on the creation or expansion of bottled water plants uh, as the government proves, uh, moves to strengthen rules around uh, water-taking permits. But is this do enough to protect our water sources? To talk more about all of this, Mike Nagy is with us, board chair, Wellington Water Watchers, and he is on the line with us now. Hello, Mike. How are you today? I'm great. It's good to be on my old hometown station. I grew up with 900 CHML every morning. Oh, there you go. Sounds good. It was part of the naggy routine. (laughs) All right, Mike. Uh, First of all, tell us what Wellington Water Watchers is all about. We're a nonprofit uh, group based out of Guelph, Wellington, and uh, we're a source water protection advocacy group that keeps an eye on harmful permits and other threats to the watershed. So we've been in existence since 2007. So, uh, are we paying close enough attention to what is going on with bottled water and the, the people taking it out of the ground? Well, for, on a Canadian national level, I don't think Canadians have been paying attention to water from all levels for, for a long time, um, for many reasons. So, it's time to start waking up and, and realize that this precious, finite resource isn't going to last forever the way we're treating it. So, it's time to change change the game and uh, as you were mentioning with your previous topic things do change and when this permitting system was um, introduced 30 years ago it didn't foresee 
and was never intended for water just to be taken out of the ground and put into plastic garbage and sent around the world. So it's time to change that. So what rules need to be changed? What needs to be re... How do we need to refocus this? Well, as you know, the story is breaking again today because the province has announced uh, after a lot of public outcry that we've been leading and others is... uh, new proposed regulations and a moratorium on packaged water uh, permits. So no new permits will be issued or no new pump tests will be issued for the next two years um, on on these type of permits. And what needs to change is we need to stop um, basically sending massive amounts wholesale water out of the province to around the world and uh, keep it in our watersheds. We've got to abandon this addiction to plastic, which is polluting the world at a fantastic rate, including our local rivers and streams now and great lakes so it's not just a pacific um, ocean patch thing it's it's growing every day so and we need to start treating our water as as a finite resource the thing that it is so there's so many things that we need to do and this is a beginning of that we hope uh is there a shortage is there fear of shortages because of the amount of water that these companies are taking shortage depending on where you live. Hamilton draws its water from the Great Lakes uh, and replenishes it, uh, but that doesn't mean it should be wasted. Um, But when you're up in Guelph, area where I am, and Kitchener-Waterloo, all through the Grand River watershed, most of of Ontario right now is on level two water restrictions, believe it or not, in a time of drought. Here we are almost in November. We're past Thanksgiving, and we're still on severe water restrictions. So yes, there is shortage. And groundwater is a very precious, finite resource that doesn't replenish very quickly in many places. And it's really expensive to, uh, to extract and, uh, and find sources. So it's very important with these new regulations that uh, we encourage this, the, the actual recogni- recognizing that climate change and cumulative impacts and population growth have great, are great factors in this. Uh, are there lots of companies taking water from Ontario, similar to what we're seeing with this situation up where you are? Yeah, there's about 15 to 20 uh, permits for packaged water in the province. Uh, Nestle uh, is, is uh, the largest. They have um, three wells now. They've just purchased a third well where Centre Wellington Township was trying to secure that well. Nestle what was owns. the story with that? Uh, did, did the did the company, because there's, there's conflicting stories here that the company wasn't aware that uh, the town was bidding on it. What, what is the story there? The, the, it would not have been difficult to figure out who the other bidder was. There's been two independent, very strong reports, including one from the township itself, stating that they were in dire need of that water within the next 10 years. The province is saying that Centre Wellington, the Laura Fergus area, is, has to grow by law um, under the Places to Grow Act, and that water is going to be needed. So um, it wasn't. It would be no great mystery that the people needed that water, and securing that uh, for a private corporation was was not the right thing to do. So um, the uh, it, that perm, that that well, but it is owned by Nestle at this point, but it's not permitted, so it doesn't have any license to operate and will not have any uh, license to operate, hopefully ever, but for sure for the next two years, two and a half years, because they won't even be allowed to do a pump test, and there's going to be a moratorium on these pump tests and uh, and permits, and they're going to have to demonstrate how these permits do not interfere with population growth, how they're going to uh, benefit future generations, and I think it's pretty clear to say these type of permits don't 
benefit future generations. Uh, it seems the amount that these companies are paying to actually remove it is extremely minimal. Is this about the dollar value of, of how much they're actually paying for this? I think the dollar value actually is, is probably one of the least uh, important aspects of this for, for one reason. There's only so much water uh, in the ground. So if I stand over an aquifer and throw $100 bills down onto the ground, it's not going to create more water. There's only so much there. The licensing fee of $3.71 per 1 million liters, yes, is wholly inadequate and needs to be updated. But that's not charging for selling the water because they're not, the province doesn't have a right to sell your water. It belongs to the people of Ontario. That's a management levy, and those levies do need to be updated. They need to reflect the harm, individual harm and risk that each individual type of permit reflects and whether they actually do benefit the, the general pop population in future generations or not. So the pricing is going to be addressed in this review. Uh, where are the water companies on all of this? Um, have they been supportive? Have they been resistant? Uh, what are their thoughts? Th- these type of industries will always want more water. So that's, that, that's your answer. It's part of their business model to mm-hmm. extract and sell more water from Ontario. So I think really that's your answer, whether they're going to be supportive about more restrictions or elimination of their permits. What's the response publicly been like on this? Because obviously these plants do create jobs. Uh, they create, a, they create uh, in fact, not a lot of jobs in respect to the amount of profit that's being made around the world and the amount of waste that's being imposed on the world. But um, the, um, their response has been saying that they're not doing environmental harm and, and other things, but we, there is evidence with the monitoring that we had asked to have in place several years ago that was put in place with the Ministry of Environment that wanted it as well, that there is harm being done to the aquifer locally and local streams. So... Uh, the evidence is sort of speaking for itself, but the problem with monitoring is it only tells you how many horses left the barn. Uh, it doesn't tell you hmm. how to get the bar- horses back into the barn, and, and so it's very backward-looking. It's not forward-looking. Um, and then eventually contamination starts coming to these pumps. You pump that much water. I mean, Nestle has a pump that is capable of, and a permit of 3.6 million liters a day in Aberfoyle, and they, they can truck up to 1.1 million liters a day from Hillsburg, Ontario, to their packaging plant, that's a lot of water being being removed from a system every day. Uh, you must be happy about the moratorium then. The moratorium absolutely is very positive. It's, it's a good time to pause and for us to come up with proper regulations. And I believe with the new regulations, we'll make permits such as Middlebrook, uh, the one in Centre Wellington, even more non-viable. Nestle purchased that, pro- that property at risk, and I believe it's even at higher risk now because that water is needed for the population it's it's identified uh, as well as um, there's severe water restrictions in that area now so it'd be pretty hard to demonstrate that removing 1.6 million liters a day from that area by bulk tanker isn't going to compete with the local population and the local environment Mike Nagy has been with us, board chair, Wellington Water Watches, uh, Watchers, talking about uh, a moratorium that has been announced. Uh, so we stop and pause about extracting water uh, out of the ground to sell in little plastic bottles. Mike, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Well, I hope people go to the Environmental Bill of Rights. Go to wellingtonwaterwatchers.ca soon, but you, it's, it's people of Ontario have a right to give a comment on this policy, so please do so. Mike, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you. 
listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Iraq forces, with assistance from the U.S.-led coalition, launched an offensive on uh, Monday today to drive ISIS out of Mosul, uh, the last major stronghold that this militant group has. What does this mean? How significant is all of this? John Thompson is with us, security consultant, strategic intelligence group, and is with us now. Hello, John. How are you today? Not too bad. Yourself? Good. Thanks very much for taking the time to join us. We appreciate this. John, how significant is this day? How significant is this announcement and this offensive? Well, it's a, it's a significant offensive. It is the, the, the last sort of big uh, <coughs> sanctuary area that, uh, that uh, ISIS controls in Iraq. Uh, and if they lose this, they're, they're pretty much... Uh, back to where they were five or six years ago. Uh, of course, the problem is is that this is an insurgent organization that's ever-changing, uh, and they probably will be back if given the chance. But uh, I think the real risks are actually not so much with ISIS, but with the coalition against them. Why is that? Well, this is uh, basically sort of fourth-generation warfare when it's not fighting about... Uh, uh, territory or treating the enemy uh, or any of the conventional sort of standards of, of winning a battle that we think of. It's, it's actually about the perception of the battle. And what ISIS has to do is last. Uh, they have to, uh, and again, they will portray themselves as heroically fending off vastly superior forces. And all they have to do is make sure they get enough stuff away to restart again later. Uh, then claim that they won, where the coalition forces are sort of being expected to yield a conventional uh, victory, and they may not achieve it. Does ISIS or ISIL need territory? Is that what they're looking for in order to fight this battle? Well, every insurgent group uh, likes to have territory, likes to have a population they can govern. Um, and it's one of the biggest mistakes in the history of insurgency is to let them have it. But they can always dial back. You know, instead of being a, a guerrilla force with troops in the field, you can go back to being a scattered uh, cells of terrorists and start over again. It, and it's very hard to eradicate them that way. Um, but coming out, you know, again, a, a, a force like ISIS... What they did two years ago was they, they seized territory, they grabbed conventional arms, and they presented themselves as being something like a conventional military force. You might remember the, the footage of them, uh, you know, poncing about in armored personnel carriers and tanks, playing like they were a real army. Mm-hmm. But uh, they can't actually fight in the field. They couldn't two years ago, and they can't now, although they can fight in the city. Um, but then it's just temporary. It's not essential to the survival of the uh, the movement. So how, uh, once this does happen and Mosul is liberated, how do we not create a vacuum which allows the same thing, which, which hopefully won't allow the same thing to happen again? Well, that's actually one of the problems. Um, Iraq is basically uh, a fractured society. And uh, you know, 13 years ago when we removed Saddam Hussein, he was one of the last people to actually hold it together, but he did so through terror and coercion. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they, no current government has been able to uh, to do that. The, um, the Shia-led militias and, and brigades of the regular Iraqi military are 
not likely to uh, want to stay in Mosul or uh, take casualties there. They're they're going to be uh, cautious in the advance. The Kurds can fight expertly, um, but there's not many of them, and they can't risk taking big casualties. And again, uh, Mosul is a city that they don't control either. And uh, again, for uh, the Western militaries that are around, like uh, ours, in an advisory role, uh, we can't allow ourselves to be uh, actively involved in the battle except for providing specialist support from afar, like airstrikes. Once, uh, can we pull out of Mosul once this is complete? I mean, it seems once Americans or Allied forces go in, uh, they appear to solve the problem or at least take out whoever's involved, and then the campaign is all of a sudden, bring the troops home, bring the troops home. Are we kidding ourselves that we can do that anymore? I mean, don't we have to stay and and monitor for years as these places try to reestablish themselves? Uh, that's the trap, and that's exactly what happened, you know, in Afghanistan in, in 2002, that, you know, uh, chased al-Qaeda out and suddenly found ourselves holding the place and having to stabilize it. <clears throat> we can declare a victory of sorts if it looks like a, if there are appearances of a decisive victory. But uh, again, if, if the American support for the Iraqi government leaves, if the other elements go, uh, and you're just back to Iraq on its own, that uh, ISIS will go back to being a, a Sunni-based terrorist group and will continue to destabilize large sections of the Iraqi state. You said earlier uh, this could backfire if given the chance. What has to be done so that doesn't happen? Uh, there has to be an appearance, uh, a solid appearance of Iraqi government of control of Mosul at the end of it. You know, that uh, the, the, the citizens that are left feel confident enough to, to believe that they're actually delivered from ISIS. The problem is, of course, is that uh, ISIS has played this sort of game before and knows what to do. And You know, there might be a few dozen of them here and there that will make sure that as soon as there's something that looks like a victory celebration, they'll set off car bombs to celebrate it. So where does this leave ISIS? I mean... Um... Can we can 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 people drop their guards at all? I mean, is there any reason to celebrate this whatsoever? No, um, ISIS is um, a new generation of terrorist group, in much the same way that Al Qaeda is, um, and it's already spread out and metastasized. Um, it's got its elements in other parts of the world as well as its uh, activists inside Europe. You know, they, they've launched successful terrorist attacks in Europe. Um, they've got cadres in, in other failed states where they can again try to establish a sanctuary area. And we're left, and this is going to be another stage of an ongoing conflict, is, and that is wherever they pop up, we'll have to go after them. Hmm. And again, provide specialists and provide support for local forces and, and train them so that they can try and keep, um, I, I, you know, the problem under uh, in manageable levels. I, I hate to use the analogy, but uh, what we've essentially done in the last few years is we've turned our military to something like uh, pest control. Hmm. You know, when you have a, a a jihadist infestation will come by and help you, hmm. but you better keep up the cleaning on your own. Hmm. Will ISIL retaliate for losing Mosul? 
Well, this is the point. I mean, they'll always say they're going to retaliate. They'll always say they're going to launch attacks and revenge for, but if they don't have anything to revenge, that doesn't stop them from launching attacks anyway. Hmm. You know, if you don't give them something to avenge, they'll they'll pretend that they're avenging something else. So as ISIL flees Mosul, where do they go? Well, they've uh, already sprinkled into uh, parts of Africa. The, uh, they've got uh, nodes of them uh, in Egypt. Um, they've uh, just made some appearances in Yemen uh, and are sort of beating cards in that particular game. Um, they've also have had elements pop up in Europe, especially with the, uh, the refugee mass surge of last year you know, that was used as a cover for some other people to get into Europe, or in some cases get back into Europe. Uh, and others will just go underground inside Syria and Iraq and uh, wait till the troops have gone and then start working back from scratch as a conventional terrorist organization. Wow. Uh, it, 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 it almost reminds you, you know, and I, I hate to use this analogy, but of a cockroach. And, you know, even if it loses his head, it just keeps going. It doesn't stop. Yeah, uh, or if you smush it, it lays eggs. Yeah, exactly. So you talked about, you know, putting them back to where they were five or six years ago. Is that manageable? Is that controllable? It's perhaps tolerable. Um you know, that you're going to get a certain amount of terrorism anyway. You might as well learn to live with it. That doesn't mean you accept it. Mm-hmm. But it does mean that, you know, there will always be, you know, say in the case of Iraq or in Syria, there will always be somebody with a car bomb, somebody trying to murder police officers. But if they can't control a town, uh, if they can't govern anywhere, then you, you've got the problem more or less under control. But uh, it is an ideological movement, and we have seen um, earlier generations that have just lasted for decades. You know, uh, uh, there have been uh, Marxist guerrillas in Colombia since the end of the, uh, the Civil War in the early 1960s. You know, FARC, they're still there. They haven't changed. You know, the IRA uh, <clears throat> outlived the circumstances that generated its birth or rebirth in Northern Ireland in 1969, and they're still not gone. Hmm. Uh, you made an interesting statement. We have to learn to live with terrorism. It seems in the past in warfare that we try to change people's way of thinking. We try to show them a better way. Can we hug out terrorism? Do we have to just learn to live with this and, and have uh, security forces in place that will deal with it on an ongoing basis? Well, there, there are points. I mean, you, you don't have to uh, accept uh, violent ideologues. And it, it's one of our problems in the modern world is that uh, we have this contemporary notion that everybody's perspective is okay. And it's so if you, uh, well, let's say if you and I put on white hoods and start preaching hate, people will come after us. But mm, yeah. Other people can preach hate, and uh, we accept it, you know, because that's just their little cultural folk way to scream that, uh, you know, Jews or pigs and monkeys or whatever is being screamed and by some mullah somewhere, uh, and we don't act on it. And terrorism is a result of that. I think you have to have a situation where you have a zero po- tolerance for any radical ideology that proposes uh, uh, <clears throat> putting the boots to somebody else. Hmm. Where do you see this going in the next, uh, in, in the short-term future with Mosul? Where, what do you see happening there? 
Well, the fight is on. There, there's about 3,000 uh, ISIS troops in the town. Uh, if their past is anything to go by, they, when they're defending a military objective, they, they actually think like terrorists. So they're not like a, an integrated brigade that's fighting in the conventional sense. They think um, in terms of ambushes and booby traps and causing casualties. Mm-hmm. So uh, you'll find them, uh, say, taking one apartment block, lacing it up with uh, booby traps and mines and <clears throat> fiendish little ambushes, and the next block over is undefended. In fact, it's been curious. I mean, the troops that were uh, fought uh, their progenitors in other cities, you know, you... <clears throat> are dealing in a desperate gunfight on one block and the next block over because the, you know, the Marines or the Rangers haven't gone over onto it. They think they're not in the fight yet. Hmm. You know, they, they don't integrate. Everything is a little tiny tactical situation. But they are, they are vicious, and it's all close-range fighting, and that's very, very hard to do. It, it demands a, a high level of skill from the average infantryman, and I'm not sure the Iraqi troops have it. So are you fearful that Mosul will again fall after it is reclaimed? It's, uh, I don't think it'll ever really be completely liberated. Um, but if there's enough resources brought to bear and, and it works, you know, that, uh, um, and if the locals are disinterested enough that, or sorry, they have enough of a hatred for ISIS that, uh, uh, if they themselves are vicious about policing ISIS every time it pops up afterwards, then they might stay free. Uh, is ISIS or ISIL aware of what's happening with the U.S. election? Are they plugged into that at all? Uh, do, do they influence that in any way, or does what's happening influence what they do in any way? Um, well, they have their own timetable, uh, but yeah, they, they do pay attention to the news, and they have their own take on it, and uh, I think they would dearly love to imagine that they're influencing the U.S. election, uh, and they're certainly capable of uh, issuing statements that uh, pretend that they are having a direct influence on it. Uh, there has been uh, ideas floated around that as the, lo- the the U.S. election approaches, if there is an attack of any sort, that it could really could really send things into a tailspin. What are your thoughts on that? Well, that's always possible. The, the problem for the, the terrorists, of course, and, and this is Al Qaeda's problem just as much as it is ISIS's problem, is that big terrorist attacks, you know, the big organized plots, doing something like a 9-11 is extremely difficult, um, especially inside North America. You know, they've been thinking about that. We've, we've seen the plots in Canada. We've seen the attempted plots in the United States, and they're hard to pull off. Uh, instead, they've switched to this sort of a do-it-yourself, inspire-yourself uh, attack, mm-hmm. where you get, you know, the, the lone weasel with, uh, you know, um, his homemade explosives with guns he's been able to uh, uh, buy locally or attacking with a car or a knife. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, a big mass attack, uh, ramming aircraft into buildings or uh, huge truck bombs, it's not impossible. It's just very, very difficult to do here. Uh, one more question that's uh, uh, of a different topic, well, similar theme, but different scenario. Uh, we remember the situation in Strathroy, Ontario, with Aaron Driver. Uh, he was, uh, I guess, the domestic terrorist who had uh, called the cab 
and uh, the police were were monitoring him, and then eventually the uh, explosive went off uh, in the cab. Uh, Aaron Driver was killed by police at that point. Are you surprised we haven't heard more about what's going on with that investigation, or do you think it's because um, the suspect was killed during the uh, the actual takedown that, that we won't hear much about it? One of the things that uh, concerns uh, a lot of our uh, people in our, our out, what I call the alphabet soup agencies, um, you know, the, the inset teams and all the rest of it, is that every time they do have a trial, they give away more of their, uh, their ways and means. Um, and it becomes part of, uh, their tactics become part of the public record, and they know that it's not just the general public that's paying attention to how they do things. Mm. So in this case, you, you haven't got a prisoner. He, uh, he was killed. There's no need for a trial. They don't need to share information with the public about what actually occurred. Hmm. So we'll never know. Well, you can make some pretty educated guesses, and uh, basically the system worked as it's supposed to work, although there was some scrambling at the end. Hmm. Uh, it also says a lot that, again, the uh, uh, driver didn't have a very powerful explosive, just what he could make with the you know, household chemicals in the correct proportions. But the, the police caught him in time largely because the, the mechanisms that we have in place uh, spotted him. And I don't think they really want to discuss more than that. Hmm. John Thompson has been with us, security consultant, strategic intelligence group, Iraqi forces with assistance from U.S.-led coalition, launched an offensive on Monday today to drive ISIS out of Mosul. John, thanks for the time and insight, as always. Much appreciated. You're welcome. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Over the weekend, a Republican candidate, Donald Trump, claimed the election is absolutely rigged by dishonest media uh, many polling stations, I think all of the, his party and, and the other party. So what isn't rigged, I guess? To talk more about all of this, Michael Diamond is with us, principal of Upstream a Strategy Group in Toronto, conservative political pundit. He is with us now. Hello, Michael. How are you today? I'm a lot better than Donald Trump, thanks. Uh, is it getting painful to you for you at this point? How painful you know, is it? It's absolutely devastating for me. I, I've never been a sports fan. I've never been good at sports. But uh, if I identify with one team, it's the Republican Party, and Donald Trump has made that impossible. Where? Uh, let's start, I guess, prior to the weekend. Where did the whole Hillary drug test thing start? He's he he came out just prior to the weekend and said he was convinced that she was on drugs during the debate and that she should get a drug test. Um, when he complains that the media is attacking him, isn't he doing the exact same sort of thing that that he's wishing that others would not do to him? I mean, where did this even come from? Well, this one's a great comparison because a few days after the first debate, Howard Dean suggested because of the sniffling of Donald Trump, right. perhaps he was on cocaine for that debate. So, And the Trump supporters rightly erupted, and uh, how dare Howard Dean say that. But then when the candidate goes and does it, it's a lot worse than a surrogate doing it. So Donald Trump is often the maker of his own misfortune with the media. Uh, at what point... Do because of course, if you listen to supporters, they all agree that that Tom, that Trump is just he's being kicked around. It's all rigged. He, it's he's winning or he's trying. He's fighting a losing game here. But at what point did Trump supporters say, you know what, you had an incredible opportunity that is only afforded the rich and famous, and you pissed it away. You've blown it. At what point do Trump supporters now get angry at him because he he's, he just hasn't done a good job here? He's, he's blown it. 
Well, you know, and that's just that Donald Trump was quite firm in saying that Mitt Romney went out there, he choked like a dog, and he disappointed us, and he let, he let Republicans down. Mitt Romney ran a very admirable campaign compared to what Donald Trump has done, and we're starting to see that. So some of his hardcore supporters, Donald Trump, as he said during the primary, could go out onto Fifth Avenue, shoot someone, and he would never lose their support. And that, that, that seems to be a trend that's very unique to him. Most candidates, they do something like that, they're going to lose support. Uh, but what you're seeing right now is Virginia, for example, Donald Trump, the Republican nominee for president, is in a state that used to be quite reliable for Republicans, has become a bit more purple recently. He is at 29% of the vote in recent polling there. It's just appalling. And if you look, who are these voters who we've lost recently? They're the ones who came back to him sort of in between the close of the primary and the, the uh, oh, maybe a week past the Republican convention, the people who started coming home, who, who decided, you know, a Republican is still better than a Democrat, and they're going to park their vote with Trump reluctantly. The people like Ted Cruz, who eventually reluctantly endorsed Donald Trump, that's the people he's losing now who are saying enough's enough. You know, this is embarrassing. This is damaging to the party and it's damaging to the country. But there is that base of Trump supporters, as he said, he'll never lose. On the other hand, though, are, are, are they not realizing that at the end he'll lose the election and that he has squandered that opportunity? I mean, I think a lot of people at the beginning were looking at this guy as a solid alternative. Um, you know, and, and lots may go, are you kidding? He was never that. But I, I think a lot of his supporters hoped that he would give Hillary a, a run for her money. And instead of being a solid alternative, he's he's it's become a sideshow. Well, that's what that's what regular people who don't suffer from uh, who aren't using you know uh, rose-colored glasses to view every, everything Donald Trump does are saying. But for his supporters, they actually believe the polling's fake. They're not calling Trump supporters. People are embarrassed to tell pollsters uh, they're voting for Donald Trump. And candidates and their teams will get the del- quite delusional. Uh, three years ago, I worked on a campaign for mayor of Edmonton, and we were way, way, way behind in, in the public polling. I remember I called a friend of mine here in Toronto, and I said to her, "Oh." You know, our, our support's invisible, this and that. And uh, she she just, like, lost it on me because she said, you know, start you know start being rational on this. And I wasn't being rational. That's what we're seeing with the hardcore Trump supporters. They're not being rational, and they're blaming everybody else for the negative coverage. Does that not look bad on him? I mean, the sign of a strong leader is someone who can point out weaknesses, not blame them on everybody else. Well, exactly. And Donald Trump, time and again, and really, if you look, every misfortune he's having in this campaign, a lot his supporters like to point out the... Uh, poor media coverage of his the, the Trump tapes versus the WikiLeaks emails, you know, the reason there's getting so much coverage of the Trump tape is because he goes out there and talks about it. Yeah. Hillary Clinton hasn't talked about the WikiLeaks emails, so she's not hanging a lantern on her problem for everyone to come pay attention to. Donald Trump is doing just that, and he's at the point where there's been talks uh, talk about, you know, he can lose, but he's still going to control this very powerful uh, movement. He's going to you know, maybe set up the Trump News Network to compete with Breitbart, but uh, at the rate he's going, he's going to be so embarrassed embarrassed that that's not going to be an option. Uh, Is he embarrassable, do you think? He has no shame, but at a certain point, he'll lose all credibility. And Mm. he still certainly has credibility with that hardcore group. But when the guy who they always support him because he's a winner and there's going to be so much winning, loses, and not only loses, loses in a style like, uh, you know, Walter Mondale, Mm. you can't pretend to be the best winner ever. Yeah. Uh, Are we at a tipping point now with him uh, saying everything's rigged, like, you know, you could say crooked Hillary, you can say whatever you want, but now he's actually questioning 
you know, the, the system that elects that, that elects leaders in America. What kind of damage can that do? Oh, that is so dangerous because, first of all, his supporters already feel uh, alienated and isolated from the country. If they're going to believe his lines that this election's uh, rigged against him and them and their movement, it's going to only further alienate that uh, segment of the population, further divide an already divided country. Uh, the peaceful transition of power is the hallmark of any successful democracy. And in the United States, Al Gore, a man I don't have much respect for, to his credit, felt he was cheated out of an election. And after the Supreme Court ruled, uh, there was a lot of Democrats who wanted to hit the streets with protests and uh, run amok and really uh, make a mockery out of what happened. And he put ice on that because he knew, you know, it's over. There's, he's not going to be the next president, and the country needed to heal. Uh, and if you look, that's even Richard Nixon, who legitimately had an election stolen from him. Him, uh, was uh, was uh, uh, put, put, put the na- put put the nation's needs ahead of his own and didn't contest the 1960 election. So Donald Trump, by doing this now, is going to be very very scary to watch what he sees when he actually loses. Is there something going on with the relationship with him and Pence? It, it you know they're n- sort of on the same page. They're not on the same page. Uh, you could see if Trump went down, uh, Pence would have no problem stepping over top of the body and bring the party back to where it needed to be. Uh, what's going on there? You know, Trump, as we recall from August when it was leaked that Mike Pence was going to be the running mate, and then they put the announcement on ice for an evening. Uh, Donald Trump never wanted uh, Pence as his running mate. He wanted probably Chris Christie, maybe Newt Gingrich. I think Newt Gingrich is looking back right now saying, thank goodness uh, he didn't offer it to me. Uh, but uh, So they were always an uneasy fit. Back in the Indiana primary, Pence very forcefully denounced Trump and endorsed Gingrich, uh, sorry, endorsed Ted Cruz. So Either one would be quite happy to be without the other one right now. And Pence uh, has always had presidential ambitions. He would have loved, uh, as people were calling a few weeks ago, for Trump to step aside to open the top of the ticket for him. Does he have to support Trump? Does he have to, you know, because he'll he'll certainly disagree with things that he says. I mean, does he have to does he have to does he have to kiss his rear end? He's in between a rock and a hard place because if he's looking and if he's going to be uh, reasonable and say this election's probably a write-off, he needs to balance a very delicate line in that he supported the ticket and he supported the primary and didn't and sorry supported the party and didn't do damage to the ticket while also being independent of Trump. And in four years when he runs for the Republican nomination, if that's what he chooses to do, uh, assuming there's still a Republican party, that he could point to where he had moral clarity from Donald Trump. Hmm. But it's tough. Huh. Uh, so he, he was saying over the weekend, the shackles are off. The shackles are off. So what does that mean? Is, is he just going to go down guns a-blazing? You know, when have the shackles seemed to be on? Because uh, yeah, to me, point. it would seem that a candidate who, after the first political debate he participated in, went on media the next day and talked about uh, the moderator's menstrual cycle, was never particularly shackled. So mm. I don't think we're going to really see much of a different uh, tone from Donald Trump because he's never cared uh, before in the history of this campaign. Um, it, it seemed to take an, a, another dip this weekend. Um, is that safe to say with him saying what he said about everything being rigged? I mean, he, he's literally lashing out at everyone for his failures here. Uh, is this a new low? Are we at a tipping point here? 
This is the this is the rhetoric that can have the most uh, lasting uh, damage and consequences uh, for the country. Because again, I, I've always been concerned that pe- people are vilifying the Trump supporters because again, they're just exercising their democratic rights and they should not be uh, mocked or teased for that by the media or or the other parties. Uh, so there's definitely a case where that's going to divide the country. But now he's going to even further alienate his own base, and that's going to have lasting ramifications. Not not just for the country, but I think it could spell the end of the Republican Party. We've seen insurgencies in the Republican Party before, the Tea Party movement, you know, the Buchanan Brigade in the uh, early 90s, but never did that uh, serve as a force to actually split the party. This might, because everybody else before has had a love of the history of the party of uh, Lincoln. Donald Trump doesn't. How will this change politics, not only in America, but maybe even here or, or, or around the world as we move forward? It seems like we're beca- the parties are becoming more polarized. You know, it, it, we have more extremes. The, the left is extreme left. The right is extreme right. There doesn't seem to be a happy medium or, a, you know, a, a central point anymore. How will this change politics moving forward? You know, I think that's an absolutely uh, great point because we've certainly seen more uh, ideological polarization. And if you look at Ontario and Canada, for example, it could be easy to say, oh, well, the Liberals are the centrist party and they won. But in both the provincial election here in 2014 and last year, tomorrow, uh, one year anniversary of the federal election, the Liberal Party certainly on many issues ran to the left of the NDP. So we had the extreme left elected in Ontario, the extreme left elected in Canada on the uh, spectrum of the parties we had uh, to choose from. And in the states where that Bernie Sanders pushed Hillary Clinton and the Democrats way to the left. Mm-hmm. Donald Trump, I, I hate to call it right wing, but it's, uh, you know, some people are calling it alt right. I don't know what it is. It's a Frankenstein ideology of a mismatch of some of the uh, worst things that you can imagine, I guess. But, uh, uh, but uh, we'll have to just wait and see what this means for the next uh, electoral cycle. But I do think this might be the end of the two party system. Uh, can he still win? Do you think that, you know, I mean, lots can happen in the next couple of weeks. Can he still win? Uh, Yes, because I and all the smart people have been saying Donald Trump can't win since he got into this race, and he's proven people wrong each and every time. So although I don't think the polling is rigged, I do think there is some validity to some folks being embarrassed to tell pollsters that they would support Donald Trump. I think there's also probably an underestimation on what his turnout will be like, because I think his folks are highly motivated. So between those two factors, it's probably closer than the uh, double-digit lead. It's probably closer to what I think ABC uh, and Washington Post have at a four-point race, probably closer to that. And, uh, you know, as we've seen, he can rebound quickly. He is a guy who had a billion dollars in losses and uh, now is worth at least $3 billion. So uh, that's, uh, you know, a good rebound there. And I think we can see him politically rebound. But the more he talks and the more he chooses to make this election about Donald Trump, the harder that's going to be. Is there a plan A or plan B for the Republican Party? If he wins, we do this. If he loses, we do that. I don't think there's enough people uh, left in that establishment to figure out how to move forward with Donald Trump as the uh, you know moral leader of their party. So that 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 will be very hard. If they're to lose, they just need to go out and heal. They need to acknowledge uh, what's not working in the party and the country, or they will not be around in four years to run a serious campaign again. What do you think is going to happen in the next debate? You know, Donald Trump certainly was better in this last debate than he was in the first uh, debate, and he he was more 
focused, it seemed. Hillary Clinton also did quite uh, well. But this debate, in my opinion, has the best moderator of uh, the three that, or the four that we'll have seen. And Chris Wallace, uh, very tough questioner, and he's also with Fox. He's going to be a li- bit less uh, gun-shy in questioning Hillary Clinton on the emails and the foundation and other scandals. So I actually think we might see Hillary Clinton get her feet held to the uh, fire, but it won't be by her opponent. It will be by the moderator. Hmm, interesting. Uh, Trump came out this weekend uh, and was tweeting uh, madly over Saturday Night Live. Is this going to get him any support? No, it, it won't. And, you know, some people were pulling up uh, tweets that he put out every year when he lost the Emmy for The Apprentice, and it was the same thing. You know, they're stupid. They don't get it. Nobody nobody understands. Uh, I'm so great. And uh, it just, it's a bit too much already, and it, it gets to that narrative that the Clinton campaign and the Democrats have been building. A man who can be goaded with a tweet is not a man you want to have the nuclear uh, code. So a man who can be so thin-skinned that he's insulted by a bad impression of him by Alec Baldwin is not a man fit for the White House. <laughs> Really? Um, Where are his kids? Because it seemed during the primaries that they were front and center and he was using, you know, them a lot, it seemed. Not so much now. Good, bad? You know, it's too bad for him, but he's put Ivanka Trump in a very tough situation, and she was his most forceful and credible surrogate. And I think uh, she has at the point where, you know, her brand is selling uh, selling. relatively well-priced fashion to the hordes of people, uh, and for women particularly. So she she runs a risk of being overly associated with the rhetoric of his campaign. And uh, it's, you know, I, you see the kids, the boys especially, are still out there tweeting and stuff and doing a few interviews, but they're being completely overshadowed by uh, the dumpster fire that their father has created. <laughs> Will uh, Donald Trump's brand survive this? I mean, you got the impression last week when he was, when he was uh, speaking that, you know, if he loses this whole thing will have been a whole waste of time for him. Uh, does he just go on to his next reality show after that, or is well, the is he public is enemy now filled by Arnold Schwarzenegger, who shockingly has a more. Uh, crystal and uh, pristine uh, record of personal conduct than Donald Trump, which is amusing to say that about anyone <laughs> compared to Arnold Schwarzenegger. Uh, it's all going to depend on the margin. If Trump, if, if Trump closes the gap, if it's closer than people are expecting it will be today, he can go on and do that Trump news organization like Breitbart and the Blaze, as some people have suspected he may. But if he gets blown out of the water, no one's going to care on that for you know making money in the alt-right world of alt-right media. Uh, but for the hotels that he licenses out, you've you got to wonder, with everything he's done and said, are there going to be some franchise owners who are paying licensing agreements and are just going to want to cancel, who don't want to be associated with the name anymore? So that's where he can lose uh, a whole lot of income. Hmm. Do you see any big changes in him between now and then, or do you think it'll just be a lot more of the same? Yeah, a lot more of the same, and that's uh, devastating for the republic, I think, because uh, it's going to mean uh, one-party rule for a little bit, and uh, that's going to be good for no one. Michael Diamond has been with us, principal of Upstream Strategy Group in Toronto and a conservative political pundit talking about all things Donald Trump. Michael, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.